Welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by our partners at Windwalk. Windwalk builds digital communities and the technologies necessary to accelerate them through their flagship software, Harbor. Harbor is an end-to-end community software that empowers community and marketing teams to delight users, measure success, and grow across an expanding number of digital channels. Harbor is a foundational technology loved by millions of gamers and integrated into the communities of the largest mobile, PC, and Web3 gaming products on the market. To learn more about this flagship product, simply head to harbor.gg or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, let's dive into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I am your host, Devin Becker. And with me, of course, I have the biggest, brightest minds in the industry continuing to join us here with Aaron, Anil, and Jonathan. How are you guys doing today? Great. Thank doing you. Good. It's the second to last roundtable of the year. So yeah. we're getting close, but I think it'll be good. Only one week off for good behavior, just to, just to celebrate. So uh, <laughs> definitely, um, obviously, take the time out there, the audience, to, to take a let your ears cool off for a week. But be I'm as sure nice as possible in that seven to eight days you've got left, so right. you don't get a lump watching. of coal for Christmas. Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. A lot of good topics today in terms of updates to some stuff we've discussed previously and in, in concluding, but also. Just some some cool stuff looking forward related to the Game Awards that we wanted to dig into. But the first few topics we're going to just briefly get into all uh, coincidentally relate to Epic. So it's going to be interesting in this sort of umbrella thing. I don't think that obviously not intentional on Epic's part, but definitely some good news and bad news kind of situation. So why don't we just write, start right off with the good news about like a fortnight that we touched on last time. Yeah, so this was mentioned in last week's roundtable, but I really wanted to touch upon it because it's been an overwhelming success since the launch of the survival mode, which is the collaboration between Lego and Epic. Lego Group put big investment in into Epic to, to get this mode out. So since its launch on December the 7th, it's had an, uh, a peak player count of 2.45 million players and an average concurrent player base exceeding 1 million. So it is, in fact, the most popular game mode in the game right now. Huge hit. I know some people internally at Lego that are very happy with the initial results so far, a big hit for them. And look, I think that they are owed a lot of credit because Lego, I feel, is a company who has somewhat missed the mark with their kind of digital strategy in the past. They have had some successes, specifically with the Traveler's Tales games and such, but you would think for such a beloved IP that's timeless, the Lego movie proving that they can move into sort of transmedia, that they haven't really had a kind of smash hit game. Myself, I've always just been surprised why they never got on the Minecraft bandwagon a a long time ago. I know they made their own version, but frankly, they should have bought that company years ago, in my opinion. Anyway, they've gone this way. They could have made their own separate game. They decided to launch it within Fortnite, which is where the players are. I think that's proved to be a fantastic decision. Look how many players are there. I think it's going to do great for their brand awareness. will probably do good for their revenue. And it looks like most importantly of all, the players really like it. I don't know if you've tried the mode yourself. I think it's very cool, actually. Really does feel like what you'd feel like a Lego game should be in the current era. So yeah, I think they deserve a lot of props. And I think, yeah, it would be worth getting maybe some of the panel's opinion on why you think it's been so successful. Is it just lightning in a bottle or is it epic are they, for Lego? It's a, an awesome success for Lego and for Epic. And obviously, bigger picture, it's starting to prove out a bit that Fortnite can be more than Fortnite. <laughs> and, and that's a big deal. But also for, for Lego, it's a pretty good, I don't, I don't know if comeback is the right word, but like next step in gaming that's been a long time in the making. There's a great book called Brick by Brick. It's basically like the story of Lego's business, like from inception through like modern history up to a few years ago. And it digs into the company's like entrance into to gaming and how hard of a time they they were having and just not being able to figure it out for themselves. 
And then the business as a whole, between like actual Lego and gaming, et cetera, turned to, to licensing, like with Star Wars and all these other big IPs. And that's the tailwind that they have been riding, particularly in, in gaming. And so for them to take another step that feels more authentically Lego, right? Like a build your own adventure, <laughs> build your own kingdom kind of thing. It makes a lot of sense. I'm glad that the investment that they've made in Epic has resulted in this brand equity. And I think it's successful enough that they'll continue to invest in it and make it better and better over time. So I <laughs> I doubt this mode is going to stay the number one mode in Fortnite. Like it'll Battle Royale will will make its return, but my guess is that this game will have staying power. To me, like the questions are like, how does this thing monetize into the future to really be worth the engagement pull that it has? And that might take some time to figure out. And that'll also make it different from like a Minecraft too, which is a premium game. But also the bigger question for Epic from this is, is how the success in the first party games trickles down to third party games. And so... First of all, like we've seen that these first party games like Lego, it has brought Fortnite as a whole to new highs and it has brought in new types of players. And so it's a success from that standpoint. But I don't think we've yet seen engagement from the first party games trickle down into to third party games. And that's something that'll take time. Developers are probably going to be antsy for a while as you know they're waiting for like better tooling to like get pushed over the finish line and for a little antsy about why is all the engagement mainly in like these first party games but so it'll take some time to play out and we'll see exactly how that works but to me like those are the big questions from here but it's obviously a great success with the launch so far yeah i agree completely and i think it hits on a couple of macro trends we keep coming back to in this podcast which is like generating audience and scale is hard harder than it's probably ever been. And building awareness of new IP is hard, right? So you've got scale built into Fortnite and you've got IP with Lego. And the idea of leveraging scale with IP is probably a much easier way to go than, again, if Lego was trying to build this game from the ground up despite the strength of their IP. So it seems like a a perfect partnership. My only critique would be maybe the launch product's a little thin. It almost feels slightly early access-y. It's not super deep. As a person who doesn't have as much time to dive into gaming as I used to, it was plenty deep for me. But for anybody who's super hardcore, potentially they would have played through what's there by now. But it's, it's, a, it's a big hit. I've already introduced it to my son, who's already diving into it. And it's as Aaron said, it's a beloved IP. It's very much a beloved IP in our, in our house. And again, I sort of think it hits on this thing that works in gaming, right? Which is like introducing other generations to the IP that you had. And it, it presses a lot of a lot of macro buttons in all the right ways. There's a couple of funny things around what you said, which is you're talking about using the scale of Fortnite and the IP of Lego. But if you think about it in the Lego toys, they've done the opposite where they've used other people's IP to help scale their blocks out to more generations. Like you talk about the generational thing where there's a lot of kids who are, would probably wouldn't have been that into Legos unless they were like, oh, hey, it's Star Wars or oh, hey, it's other things that I like in this form and now I'm more into Legos. Then of course they've capitalized on that with the different telltale games. And then even the Lego movie, like Lego Batman movie, stuff like that. So it's, it's funny. They're kind of getting it both ways, right? Where they're trying to scale off of other people's IP as other people's scale. Totally we'll true. It goes both ways. Right. Well, we'll see if we end up with a, uh, with a Fortnite movie, a uh, Fortnite Lego movie right <laughs> off of it, but uh, it, it'll be interesting to see if it also affects their relationship with Minecraft at all, just because they also have Minecraft sets. That they produce. Obviously, you're not going to see like a Minecraft set in the Lego thing for Fortnite because that would be kind of maybe a little <laughs> too on the nose at that point, especially with Microsoft owning it. But it is interesting. And I could see some potential with it seems like they and I don't have numbers to back that up, but it seems like they might have been fairly successful with their Mario course creator sort of toys. And then also like with uh, Mario Maker uh, having been a fairly successful thing, I could see some potential for that to be digitized, whether that be through the Fortnite experience or if, if they're able to leverage this into their own products, stuff like that. There could be some potential for additional IP crossover with Mario, being able to like say make levels essentially within a Lego program digitally that sort of recreating multiple IPs at the same time. So lots of interesting potential there, depending on the directions they go and licensing and all that paperwork fun, I'm sure. Yes. But uh, I'm gonna have a lot of trouble managing screen time in my house, for sure. <laughs> 
can imagine. Like Legos are definitely not the worst thing, right? It's one of those like wholesome activities where you're like, all right, all right. If you're spending time doing that, maybe you'll become an engineer or something that makes good money. That's fine. You just STEM or STEAM now, I guess it is. Well, that's going to be interesting, right? Because the Legos, there was obviously no Lego limitation time in our house and there's screen time limitations in our house. And if it's Lego screen time, what do we do? Gray area. They found a workaround for you. I'm not playing Fortnite. I'm playing Lego, dad. (laughs) It's the workaround now. Speaking of workarounds, Epic's other story here that is good news, bad news, good news for Epic, bad news for Google. We finally have a swift and interesting conclusion to that case. Yes. So quickly background in 2020, Epic sued Google, claiming that it used its dominant position to capture excess profits from from its app store. And so now finally, three years later, a jury has decided that Google is guilty. And there still are next steps to come. The next steps are a judge will decide what remedies must occur and Google will inevitably appeal the decision. So it's going to drag out for longer as always. And so maybe we'll be talking about this for, for a while too. But we should get some, some recommended changes shortly. And one thing that's worth noting is why Google lost this case around its App Store and payments systems when Apple won its case against Epic a couple of years ago. And so just to break that down a little bit to try to make some sense of it, Apple won because it's a vertically integrated ecosystem, meaning its customers purposefully know what they're buying into with Apple. Control over the App Store experience in that case could be and was argued to be core to the value proposition of picking Apple as your smartphone provider or tablet provider. There were still anti-steering charges, et cetera, but, but that is what the courts decided. Not really my opinion. I'm just saying like that's, that's what the, the, the judge decided in that case. The difference between Google and Apple here is obviously then the fact that Google is largely not selling vertically integrated products, but rather its software, Android, through contracts to OEMs, to the phone makers. And what this trial dug up and showed was evidence that, one, Google paid OEMs to keep them from shipping with alternative app stores, that, two, it made deals with top app makers regarding special rates and treatment around payment percentages to to keep them satisfied. Three, Google acted to fend off multiple developers from launching alternative game stores. And then fourth, apparently, it failed to convince the jury that its 30% fee is fully justified. And behind all of that, of course, is the fact that Google has pitched Android as open source, but as time has gone on and Android has become far more dominant and has dominant market share in smartphones from its operating system standpoint, it's begun tightening control. So Google essentially tried to maintain its open source perception while actually acting against it, which makes it harder, according to the courts, for consumers to see what's going on and make good decisions. So the question from here is what happens? And we'll see what the judge has to say soon. But one key piece that may change that I want to flag is the firm tie right now that exists between Google Play and Google Play billing. And so, yes, other app stores may continue to be a thing. You can still actually do that on on Android to some degree, despite their their attempts to limit it as much as, as possible. Obviously, those will still struggle because of Google Play's network effects. But anyways, more importantly, it's now more likely that app makers can stay in Google Play but use alternative billing systems, which would hack away from that 30% fee cut. And that's potentially a big deal. And really what the win here is for Epic. Epic can still go on and try to make their alternative gaming store more successful. But more importantly, you know, Fortnite in or other games in the Google Play Store don't have to use Google Play billing and can go through their own payment system or others that potentially is a major value unlock and is perhaps the larger outcome for gaming of all of this. But we shall see as the dust settles. But uh, that's my <laughs> my perception of what happened here. But I'm curious if you guys have other takes or other other thoughts on that. 
I think there's one more lever, which is the Apple case was a judge decision and the Google case was a jury decision. And right or wrong, arguably or not, I find that judge-led cases often are found more to the letter of the law and there's an emotional component to jury-led cases that is a wild card factor. I'm not saying given all the levers that you laid out, this wouldn't have been the same outcome with a judge-led case. I think that Google did a much worse case emotionally convincing the jury. I would say that's backed up too by the the idea that what they were doing looks like bribery, but might be perfectly legal, in which case a judge might just be like, well, that's legal, that's fine. Whereas the jury's like, well, that looks like bribery with the cases, with the, with what they were doing to pay off developers like Activision Blizzard, things like that. So you're like, ah, no, don't, don't do other stores. This is fine. Here's some money. Uh, those kind of actions, obviously it depends on the, the uh, lawyer and the ability to present to the jury yeah. and the jury selection, all that stuff, right? Whether or not you can push those emotional buttons. But that sort of thing, as you said, probably would have been fine under a judge, depending on how they saw the law, so. right? You don't I actually so. you don't, don't think, think so. Like, yeah, I think that like the difference again, like Apple being vertically integrated, it can do whatever it wants on its own hardware, on its own ecosystem, as people know that that's what they're buying into. But more in this case, where you're just running an operating system, if you're able to control your monopoly through like contracts <laughs> that favor certain companies that maintain your dominance that maybe are not fairly executed across more competitors or more players in the space that often is viewed as like leveraging contracts to like unfairly maintain monopolistic position and you actually do see that as a means of judges and juries cracking down on monopolies over time i don't know how much it's really happened in tech so far if anything it probably should happen more and you can even look at companies like amazon and point to it's more like the contracts that they make between suppliers and such that are more the the issues or contracts of bundling and like Microsoft or, or something. And so where these contracts take place is often where you can start making cases against monopolies. But yeah, obviously, if it were a judge specifically, could have been different. But in this case, too, it's still the judge that decides, you know, what the remedies will be. <laughs> so so we'll see how that really pans out. The judges are still in business. Yeah, the one thing I believe that the judge shot down in terms of remedies was Epic was proposing like something where it'd be like, we need to do something to prevent them from skirting around this in some way. I forget the exact legal wording, but basically trying to make it so that like they couldn't find just another way to work around the ruling. And the judge was like, no, if they do, just come back, basically, which of course has been extremely expensive, I imagine, for Epic. So I'm sure they didn't want to hear that. They just wanted to be one and done with this sort of thing. But to be fair, on, on Epic's side, for those who like weren't following Epic's kind of case in this, they weren't really asking for like monetary rewards or anything like that. They were like, hey, we just want Google to play fair, basically, was the idea. And that's it definitely makes Epic, Epic look good in this case. I imagine that that could have even influenced the jury to be like, whoa, whoa, they're not even asking for money. They're just wanting Google to do right. That probably bought them a little bit of sympathy from the jury, I imagine. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully this cracks down on the building tie-ins. I, I, I got to imagine Apple's looking a little nervous because this sort of, if if it separates that building sort of thing, chips away at that link, and then you start looking at the anti-steering stuff, which in itself is goes towards the building stuff, and that of course is where all of the money comes from as they run these services. You got to be nervous if you're Apple at this point. Even if you think, oh, I've won this, it's still chipping away at sort of the precedents and and just the legal sort of ecosystem that seemed to be in their favor before. The anti-steering seemed to be the common agreement between these two cases, right? In both cases, anti-steering was seen as illegal slash poor behavior. And so the question comes down to, once you've removed the anti-steering, do we just see a slow drip towards shift to developer? Obviously, it's more friction, but if you take the most egregious friction out of it, and furthermore, the active insertion of friction, right? Just over time, do you see a slow move towards direct to publisher, direct to developer? Yeah, I was going to say just from a kind of being in the industry standpoint and and working on mobile, I think this is actually more impactful what happening on Google than on Apple, because although players do spend more on, on Apple, they don't spend as much because there aren't as many. Like normally when you look at your game in the downloads, you'll have significantly more on Android than you will have on your iOS devices. So any change in the bottom line is huge. So going to other app stores, I think as well, is more 
palpable or, or palatable for users on these platforms. So I expect there to be quite fast changes here and I can definitely see things picking up. And I think it's good for people that are in the industry right now because, yeah, obviously there's a lot of people bleeding right now. I think it will have a big impact. I can imagine too, not everyone's going to want to roll their own building kind of thing and things like that. So you end up with a situation where people that are willing to provide the building stuff, but at a competitive rate to Google, then start to become interesting. And that, of course, forces Google down. And we may see a situation where Google still wins. They're just forced to come down in their take because like, oh, yeah, everyone still wants to use it. There's competition now. And that's the big thing, right? Is competition is supposed to be the thing that keeps prices fair and that doesn't exist on app stores. And that's what all these cases are about. So Hopefully that brings it out. These kind of cases did force them to, to sort of consider that 15% sort of tier and then forced Apple to do the same. So everyone started having to budge a little bit. And now this win forces them to budge maybe a lot of it. We'll see, depending on like the remedies, potentially things like that. So obviously with legal stuff, though, it's, it's ongoing. There's nuances and details that uh, would be better to ask of lawyers probably. But overall, this seems like a win for gamers. And game developers, potentially. It may not be a win for gamers. I don't know. We, we may get, still get the shaft on just 30% markup for us, but not for the developer. So hopefully the cases, the savings are passed on to us to some extent. We'll see. But speaking of Epic and stores, in a different take, their own store running into some interesting issues around regulation of sorts. An interesting case here where Epic had been known, and we, we talked about this before, for bringing a lot of Web3 or blockchain games onto the it's desktop store, which was a big deal because Valve doesn't allow that on Steam. And so this was kind of a safe harbor, it seemed, for these sorts of games. And so they've just been piling on. I think they're they're well over maybe even 200 at this point, either coming soon or on. And so it's been a huge, huge deal for that industry. But now they're starting to show a big crack potentially, which is through the, the ratings, which happened to hit Gods Unchained, one of the older games, still doing stuff here, and had managed to bid on the Epic Games Store for maybe a week or a month or something, some very short period of time before it suddenly had to get removed due to being rated as adults only, which is, of course, like similar to NC-17 with movies where it's pretty much just death at that point. You can't be in theaters, really, or things like that. And it just, it comes down to people won't carry your stuff, not necessarily that you're banned for being in stores, and Epic is not going to carry adults-only games. So that leaves a situation where they're just basically removed. And now the reasoning that they gave was not for the typical stuff of, of graphic violence or nudity, things like that, or sexual content, but instead was for the the rewards that could be earned through play having real world value, which is huge to the value proposition of Web3 games, which now is basically almost like saying, if you want to make your anything in your game actually mean something outside of the game and or like have value long-term, that's now an adults-only game, which is, of course, a huge, huge problem. Not just for Web3 games, but just for any game that might have stuff that's tradable in an external marketplace or have some potential for dollar value. Of course, they're not going to lay out the exact way that they ruled this out. and, and Well, not ruled, they're not a court, but determined this exactly and what kinds of things might not qualify for this. But this potentially opens every single one of those Web3 games to be marked adults only if they have any kind of rewards or any kind of things that are produced or given to the player through the game or game play that then fall in that. And this this is some overlap as well with uh, Google's side of things on the topic of the Google Store with their policy around gambling law and the way that the reasons they don't want to have loot boxes that produce anything of real world value like tokens or NFTs. So some definitely overlap there. And this is striking, I think, at the heart of Web3 in general. And if it stands as is and continues to steamroll, big, big problem for that, whole, not just on Epic, but across all the stores. So, I mean, Anil, as a Web3 developer yourself, I, I got to wonder what you're thinking in this, obviously a different store that you're in, but still same potential problem. Well, this game specifically, I was going to add some more context that they have a sealed mode, which is a bit like if you play TCGs when you go in with a blind deck. And so that was considered gambling because you have like real world value associated with the card and you don't know what you're going to get going into that mode because you could get like an amazing deck or you could get like a crap deck such as the beast they're playing sealed. And so for that reason, that was considered gambling and that's what's changed in the age rating thing. So that's a little bit of a, a kind of a slippery slope because those are the sort of modes you'd want in it. I largely think that like Epic Game Store, who cares? Just to be totally honest with you, name one person that's ever downloaded a game on that store and not on Steam. I don't think that happened. Could this be a precedent that we see in other stores? It's certainly possible. I think it will be something that we start 
you know, I think first what will happen is people will build it, then there'll be some backlash, then it'll probably start becoming more accepted or there'll be ways around it and then it'll be allowed. But for sure, that's something that people have to consider because in this case, yeah, what is important to understand, it's not that like they suddenly got age rated because they put adult content in terms of the artwork on the cards or anything like that. It was literally a game feature. And I would say that like, yeah, having a sealed mode in a card game makes loads of sense. In fact, I would actually say as someone who loves card games themselves, that's a cool mode that you'd like to do. It's definitely fun to play in tournaments like that sometimes because it's uh, really quite random and fun in that sort of way. So interesting to see. Yeah, as a Web3 developer, not sure what to make of it. Like I said, given that it's, uh, I'd be more worried if it on the bigger platforms, but interesting to see that they took that stance. The question is, is it the canary in the coal mine towards gaming kind of starting crypto winter 2.0, right? Again, certainly going back to the macros, it's not been the best regulatory slash legal environment for crypto once again, right? Bitcoin's increase and then slight pullback aside. And the the question is, is this this just another example of the regulators are coming, Right. So, yes, in and of itself, it's a it, it's a teeny removal. Increasingly, there seems to be unhappiness with with unregulated crypto marketplaces. Yeah, I mean, honestly, yeah, this whole thing like- is a bit absurd. <laughs> I think you're right, Jonathan, that the regulatory piece has just been slow to figure out. Certain regions have done it much better than others. But in the U.S. in particular, it's been um, annoyingly slow if not non-existent progress in in a bunch of ways but to me this is just like the ESRB which is is not a government entity it's like a it's a non-profit entity that everyone just kind of looks up to and standardizes around and it's a decision that they made to to start to either they always have viewed it this way or they started viewing it this way and either way like the solution <laughs> here is just that Either the ESRB just like has to come to grips with reality of like what's really going on here, because it's not rocket science that a game like this like (laughs) should not be rated adult only. Um, um, Even if you could like tag it in other ways to say that there's like real money potential or something, you can do that without making it tagged adult only to have this large of a ramification on it getting removed from stores and such. So. As I think leaders in Web3 gaming should be <laughs> like lobbying, like kind of banding together to reach out to the ESRB to try to come to some type of agreement on how to not let that happen, not be judged in that kind of way and find alternatives. Like you can instead like on these on these stores, like get those ratings of like there are in-app purchases in this game, like how that's been added. There are, you know, potentially real money values in this game, but it still be rated T <laughs> or whatever based on the actual gameplay. Like that makes a world of sense compared to what it is right now. But that has to actually like go through discussion and get hashed out. The other side is just a, an epic game store who obviously cares about about this. Just seeing it happen and also being part of the solution. And what happened here was just an automatic policy type of thing where they just as a policy, don't allow games of a certain certain rating. If it happens, it just gets automatically pulled. And I think that's actually fair to have that type of policy on a store like this, if that's what they choose to do. Um, but if it's screwing over games on their own platform, then they should also <laughs> band with developers, as Epic often does, to try to get it resolved. So there's that. And then also, like I was looking in like, the ESRB, like, the difference between M, which is 17 plus, and adult only, which is 18 plus, is ridiculous. <laughs> if, if you think about it, like, what does one year have to do with anything? Just like change M to 18 plus. So that's how you really feel. And not even have adults only. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm being too simplistic minded about that. But the more I look at the ESRB, I'm just like, what the hell? <laughs> like, like, why, like, why does everybody like worship this rating entity? Like, we should able to come to solutions with them or around them that can solve anything and everything, both with this specific circumstance in Web3 and honestly, anything else. And you're totally right on 17 versus 18. Again, I think they're trying to make a point about it, right? It's the difference between a hard R and an unrated, right? Yeah. Whether we agree or disagree. But, but yes, 
the industry struggles with ESRB go back decades, but I think this is just the latest point of it coming to a head, right? We've got a new a, a new game mechanic. Isn't it? Is this in essence the new loot crates kind of issue that we're dealing with? Yeah, and I guess too, like my guess is this gets resolved in some shape or form with Epic, but it really does signal. I know there are other attempts out there to create alternative Web three leaning distribution hubs that can just make their own rules and sidestep all of this and build their own features that are more Web3 native. And the more these types of shenanigans happens, the more that makes a world of sense too. I don't know if that will get a whole lot of traction because of this right now, just because of how early it still is in terms of user adoption. But if this were to happen five years from now, it it would create so much more attention and traffic towards alternatives that it just makes you wonder if that should happen earlier. I think it makes a lot of sense for just because of network effects for an Epic Games to figure out how to take this and Web3 and Web2 games or whatever you want to call them kind of live side by side because gamers are just gamers at the end of the day and don't need all these different platforms. But but yeah, it does make you wonder how this will play out. Yeah, to a couple of your points there, the the funny thing is it has all the tags that you're talking about already with the blockchain NFT tags. Yeah. Fully pretty much are the disclaimer you're talking about. So it's like they're already doing that part, which is like very proactive on Epic's part and making sure that there was those warnings so people know what they're getting into, which of course is your point, right? Like people should just know what they're getting into and be okay with it. And they're already warning there. The only way they could be more so is if it, like when you went to install it, it, one more time, just double checking, this is blockchain NFT, right? Like other than that, like it's it's pretty much doing that. But to be fair, like Epic is the one enforcing the policy, uh, and there there's no reason they can't just go, "Hey, adults only is allowed, but only in this one exception." And that's like that's that's fine. They could do that because it's not like some automated smart contract that executes. They could execute on that. They could have flags in their system or whatever to handle that. So I don't think that's like, uh, it just matters whether or not they want to do that. Now, of course, they've like, I think gotten a lot of good, hopefully good PR from allowing a lot of games on there that were dealing with struggles on trying to get traction on other platforms. But that's, of course, from the people that are pro Web3, the people that are anti Web3 might have felt the other way. Uh, and to your other point, the, the SRB is one of those things where it was like, we had all those moral panics every time there's like new stuff introduced, like comics or video games or whatever. And it was like, it was meant to be one of those like sort of community solutions where it's like, hey, we'll regulate ourselves so you don't have to regulate us. And it's like, that seems like we're, we're starting to kind of creep towards, or maybe we have been for a while, just it almost ending up like a, a sort of de facto government body where we almost need to reboot it again, right? And, and bring it back more down to the community level or like maybe have committees, things like that. So it is kind of funny that like these things are technically already solved, but it clearly did the solutions didn't work. And so, I mean, obviously, this is like a very recent thing. And I don't think Epic has really had time to react. Uh, obviously, God's Unchained is trying to figure out what they could do uh, because it's like a big game for them. And this has been very successful lately. They've put a lot of time and effort into revamping this game because it was kind of just idling for a while because this is one of the oldest Web3 games still operating and still doing well, mostly because they put a lot of effort into that. And to lose that status obviously sucks, but they've been doing well without the Epic Store prior to that. So this is not going to like cripple them. Obviously, they're also immutable, which runs their whole blockchain. So this, for for all the people to happen to, this is actually not the worst. Like this isn't some small developer that's just like, well, we're screwed, Uh, shut down the doors. We can't get any traction now. At least it's not a terrible situation. But as Anil pointed out, this might be something that people might want to be cautious of exactly how they implement their their web3 rewards in terms of what the entry point is and whether or not that leans too far away from skill or things like that obviously like physical trading card games have sealed tournaments you pay to get in you get a deck exactly like this you get a monetary reward or some other physical reward that has real world value so it clearly happens in the real world without falling under gambling regulation and miners do it like miners participate so i don't think it's clearly it's it's not an adult solely like sort of activity it's just a matter of how they enforce this policy. But I do think this sort of thing combined with all the other loot box stuff is leading us towards a head eventually of where video gaming meets traditional gaming. As we see it in terms of the fact that like there's obviously something that works about traditional gaming that obviously works as well in video gaming and developers would like to have as much of that as possible without crossing the moral, ethical, and legal lines. And as I pointed out with the with the Google thing as well, they're just like, hey, just don't touch that area and you're fine. 
this is this seems like we're heading towards that territory where that becomes whether it be a legal battle or just a territorial battle. I don't think we hear the last of this sort of thing, just maybe from different angles. But it's it's the end of the news time, and we're going to get it right into the game awards, but of a different type. Not our own giving game awards this time. The game awards just happened recently, if you didn't hear about it. It's almost taking the place of E3 in a sense here, which was a big surprise because E3, of course, is now just kind of donezo. So everyone kind of saved their their big trailers and reveals and things like that for the game awards, which had a lot of announcements in a year where, of course, we had people struggling with former delays and layoffs and stuff like that. Now we got a lot of potentially cool games coming out, hopefully. But we just want to take a look at some of the interesting stuff that came out of that in terms of what it could mean for 2024, 2025, game genres, things like that. So why don't we just go ahead and start with you, Anil? Oh, loads of great stuff there. Let's start with, I guess, the thing that made me most excited. For me, actually, it was No Man's Sky developers, Hello Games, of their new game. I hope I haven't stolen that from anyone else, if that's what they were going to say. Why do I think this is? I think there's kind of an industry trend at the moment of maybe being a bit overly ambitious and not quite executing on that vision. And I dare say that the original No Man's Sky was like that. I would say that Bethesda kind of experienced that themselves this year with the perhaps slightly underwhelming star build. So why am I impressed by this? Because actually, I feel like even though this game, which is going to be set on one planet, because their previous game was an entire universe that you could create, it kind of felt like that all the lessons that they've learned from improving No Man's Sky over the last few years is going to be collated into this game which is like a, actually an RPG, which is quite unusual. I didn't really see them making that type of game, I have to say. But on one world, it looks graphically gorgeous. Procedural world, though, so they're using that tech. So, yeah, I guess why I'm excited is I think, one, I feel like the, the concept looked good, art style looked great, but I also felt that it almost shows some kind of humbleness of like, maybe we should try and make something that we know we're good at and the lessons that we've learned we can use to make a great game. So, that maybe just in my mind, I'm kind of overplaying it, but I'm already just thinking, wow, I, I, I kind of don't see how this game is going to be bad. In fact, I'm kind of thinking this game is going to be really good because they just kind of do everything that they're good at and make it good up. So yeah, I thought that was really, really captivating. Um, really excited to, to see it. Uh, yeah, and so the game's called uh, Light No Fire, kind of an interesting name too. Uh, curious to see more of it. And one thing that I'll write about them as well is that I have to say, I used to work with some of the people at that company, so maybe I'm a bit biased. I know how talented that they are. But something that I think is really cool about them is they often do things that aren't just copying the same engine over and over, but they like to push themselves and try new challenges. I think it's something they have like extremely strong technical competency. So really excited to see that game and give it a try for myself. Yeah, I'll actually jump in because one of my my points was similar or tangential, which is that I think we're starting to see more small teams punch above their weight. And I think we'll continue to see more of that. The This team, Hello Games with Light No Fire, I think is one, one example. And they've proven themselves to some degree already, but it's still a small team <laughs> pursuing big ambitions. I talked about this maybe a couple weeks ago with Embark Studios and the finals and how that was a small team that basically made a AAA shooter game that's that's captivated a lot of attention lately. And in that case, a lot of it was just like being very progressive with AI tooling and software they're using to like enable their developers to be more efficient than perhaps what you see at the larger companies out there. And I think we'll continue to see a lot more of that. And it started showing its head a bit at the the Game Awards this year, where it's not just those teams making indie games, although there still is that too, what people would normally consider indie games, but also a lot of those similar size teams <laughs> making games that that are more competitive with the bigger, bigger players. Maybe early, early days of seeing that trend kind of take on more legs well, as well. Just to add to that, as for my previous point, I feel that like they have built up a lot of goodwill with their improvements to No Man's Sky. I think they and Cyberpunk were the two games that I felt like people really wanted to be good, but ultimately were extremely disappointing at launch with, with their titles. And I think that both of those teams, I believe Cyberpunk actually did win an award for best ongoing game or something like <laughs> yeah. that, which is kind of, yeah. well, it felt like a, a bit of a made up award, which is another subject that we might yeah. kind of cover already in this cast. But I do think that it's fair to sort of acknowledge or say, I do like that, for example, that you can salvage something and repair that and, and make it better. Like, I do think that you, you could argue that, especially for a, a team like CD Projekt Red, they shouldn't be shipping something of that technical 
problems on day one. No Man's Sky, that team Hello Games is much smaller. So I feel that there was pressure with them with the first time around because this was the, the opportunity of a lifetime to see sort of revenues they've never seen before. They had to push the day. Look, maybe it is copium from my side, but I think that with this game, I would be surprised if they rushed it. I think they would take their time with the lessons that they've learned. And even if it's not quite as good as people want to be on day one, or do I expect it to be much better, they'll maintain it over time. So that's kind of my point there is I think that people in the industry are growing up a, a little bit in that sense, realizing what's necessary to do that. And it's much better to execute on a few ideas in a really strong way rather than to overpromise, and none of those ideas work, which that's the kind of theme that I still see that even though we have all this possibility that you can do with like current engines and tooling and things like this, it's actually extremely difficult to get a really overall uh, product that works. I'm going <clears> to <throat> hack this a little bit which is my biggest excitement coming out of the bla- what I'll call the blast radius around the Game Awards. It was GTA 6, which was supposed to announce the day before the Game Awards to get ahead of the 10,000 announces, but ended up being two days before the Game Awards because I think they were worried about it leaking. But I mean, I think, what, 100 and something million views in hours. It was, it was very hard for me not to be excited about that. And I think the trailer... For, for a company that's always gotten trailers right, I think the trailer was exceptionally good as far as they go. So I, I couldn't not leave being most excited about GTA 6. There was, a, there was another topic as well, Jonathan, that, that I think you wanted to kind of bring up sort of related to the small teams sort of argument coming from An- Anil and Aaron around the awards that sort of was more of a halo around it. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting, right? Because I think the... There was a bit of a controversy going into the video game awards, and then a different sort of controversy came out of it, right? Which is very clearly, as you kind of set this up, like the VGAs have now become the new sort of key announce moment of the year. And publishers, developers have leaned into it, or especially publishers have leaned into it. And so the product has become increasingly commercial. And the sort of commercial first focus of the product, and I think Jeff's done an amazing job with that has had a couple of different sort of community blowbacks, right? The first community blowback that happened in advance was about how politicized or not politicized the show was going to be around what's going on in the Middle East. And the second one sort of coming out of the show was developers sort of feeling like second-class citizens behind publishers' hits, celebrities, etc. And sort of the the people who are responsible for making the games day-to-day and work endless hours... And the people that deliver the magic at the end of the day, I think, sort of felt short-shifted by 30 seconds to sort of say everything they need to say, being shooed off with Oscar-style leave-the-stage music. If they didn't get done, how much stage time was Matthew McConaughey versus a developer, and how much they get lost in or clearly commercial placements around these channels. Jeff's got a, a very specific commercialization model, right, which is a lot of like what looks like content is, in fact sort of paid marketing. And you sort of came out of the awards with a with a second group of gaming insiders. And again, the overlay of all the layoffs that have happened in the business and no sort of recognition of that in the run of show in sort of trying to put as, as much of a positive face forward, commercially friendly product out there. On one level, I completely get that. And the magic in this business is never done without the magicians. On the second piece is if you sort of compare viewership of, say, the Dice Awards, if you go to YouTube or other streaming platforms with the VGAs, it's undeniable, right? So it's a classic argument about, do you want your art in front of the most eyeballs as as possible? Interestingly, so far, with the exception of a little bit of press, the VGAs seems to have skirted being dragged in any kind of like major controversy over this. And it all seems to just be sort of like passing through. But there were certainly a couple of small community storms around this year's VGAs. There there have been in the past and there will be in the future. And I think it's actually good that they haven't bent the knee to any one controversy because it's a slippery slope of where do you draw the line for what you want an award show to stand for in the world or not for topics that are often bigger and bigger than gaming. And so I, I think it's good to keep focused on video games and awards and, and such. I, I even remember last year, the big controversy was around like, what was it like inequality around like representation in the industry. And so they led the awards with 
a note about we don't tolerate that. And I think one of the controversies coming out of it was like the first trailer they showed right after that was like one of the studios that was accused of of letting whatever inequality happen. I don't remember exactly. So there's always go- it's a massive industry with so many people globally all around the world. There's always going to be controversy, but I think staying generally focused is is right. But of course, I mean, the internet's been on fire, so I don't think we need to pile on too yeah. hard with saying like, yeah, like, of course, like give developers a bit more time, like the, to talk, you know, a bit of the celebrity stuff almost makes it seem like they don't think games industry people are cool enough for a game award show and they need non-industry people too, which is a little, which is a little weird, but I don't know. In general, like, I think cramming it full of releases and stuff is actually what makes it interesting and celebrities pull attention and it becomes a more watch better show with that despite what all of the complaints about it are so give and take and, and, and to your and to your point about last year i mean part of the irony is allegedly the 30 second limitation on speeches was based around an eight minute speech last year given by hollywood talent in essence right like a game voiceover actor it's, it's it's always this push-pull, give-take to try to make it the best show. But I agree with you. If, if it doesn't remain a commercially viable product first, that's not good for gaming. That's not good for the developers. That's not good for selling games. And it's that classic thing about all art, right? Are you here to get your art out in front of as many people as possible? Or are you here to celebrate your, your art in a very narrow echo chamber? Yeah, I mean, going on to Jonathan's point actually kind of leads into what I wanted to kind of bring up about what I noticed about the whole set of games for the most part announced around that commercialization. And it is kind of funny. We think about like what you were saying, Aaron, thinking about the idea of like, what if the Oscars was the platform for announcing new movie projects? It's kind of, it is a little weird in the sense that we're not used. I mean, I'm used to like Comic-Con almost being the platform for movie announcements at this point, just due to like Marvel kind of running the show. But it is, it is a little weird to like, here's the winners from before. And now you should be excited about these ones coming up that we're totally not going to be biased towards because they were launched here at our show. Yeah, I've, uh, just to jump in there, I've, I've got to say that's my big pet peeve of it. So I understand about making it a product that people want to watch, but that just feels so diametrically opposed to, to what it should be about. Like, clearly, this thing is aimed at being the Oscars for games, right? And it's just not. It just feels like a complete lie to that. And... Well, that's my opinion and stance on it. So it's going to, even now we're getting more excited about the game launches rather than celebrating the winners and things like that. And I feel that that's fundamentally wrong. But that's just- that's fair. So so here's the question: Is it the Oscar of gamings or is it the Grammys of gamings? And the Grammys has had the same critique, right? That it's largely commercially driven. That commercial success leads to who appears on stage. I agree. They're not necessarily like announcing future recording projects with the Grammys, but the Grammys versus the Oscars has been sort of commercially led for a long time. You Surprisingly, a huge number of winners managed to perform in the show. Why do you think that is, right? And collabs, et cetera. So, so I, I hear you, but I think part of it is like, is this the Grammys of gaming or is this the Oscars of gaming? Well, maybe if they were uh, showing new movie trailers at the, at the end of the Oscars, Will Smith wouldn't have to come up and slap someone like just to get relevance again. <laughs> I mean, but like the, the the overall thing I would go towards was was looking at the the selection of games that were announced. Right, you mentioned it being kind of a commercial entity. Obviously, this isn't free airtime; anyone can jump on. Right, it's not public access. So, what I noticed as a trend and like it's kind of broad game trends, anyways, is like a lot of recognizable, whether it be sequels, brand IP, or just like tagging on to the 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 previous success of a developer like you you mentioned in no man's sky right it's not a sequel to no man's sky but they're tagging on specifically to hey you remember no man's sky here's a game but it's not just like a game out of nowhere it's the game by the developers of no man's sky like there's always either an association with the developer or an ip or a sequel and i mean it makes commercial sense right you don't want to announce a game no one knows anything about or cares about right some of them were just like hey this is the next hideo kojima game and that's all we're really going to tell you Stuff like that, but it was always there was always some association to something recognizable as a way to make this like at least have some impact for these things. And I think that also like kind of scopes the kind of things you're going to see because especially if they're if it's pay to play, like to have your stuff on there, you're going to have to have some marketing budget. You're not going to be some indie game, so it's going to skew a lot of what you see. I think in there, 
But it is interesting to see like them trying to farm a bit of nostalgia, trying to farm a bit of like excitement around sequels and things like that. I mean, you have World of Goo 2, like going back or like uh, Sega announcing like crazy taxi games again. So there's a bit of like people kind of trying to play off of that recognizability. And I think that like impacts a lot of, I mean, we already see a lot of sequels in games, right? And in movies and everything else. Because when you're trying to de-risk, obviously you're going to look for things that uh, have some platform already and aren't just coming out of nowhere. But I didn't notice like a lot of that in the, the many, many announcements. So it was interesting to see that just that kind of sort of diversity of different types of uh, recognition sort of farming happening. And a lot of there wasn't a lot shown in a lot of these. It was what, like those teasers where it's like, hey, remember this? And that's really all we're really telling you. Uh, and, and there was definitely a lot of that happening, which uh, does remind me a bit of E3. Unfortunately, E3 had a lot of not really showing you so much, but just trying to get you excited which this is maybe early for a lot of these games. So I can understand that, but it does feel like we could get bait and switched with a lot of these where it's just showing cutscenes or showing some kind of maybe an intro video or a theoretical, this is what we hope the game will look like down the road sort of thing. So I would definitely take a lot of these trailers with a grain of salt because it seems like they're just trying to be like, hey, this is a moment we can leverage to advertise our way into 2024 and 2025 when our balance sheets are looking terrible, we're having to lay off people, we need to get people excited, maybe we need to start selling early access or pre-orders, getting stuff going. Like These weren't like 2026, 2027 titles. They're going to try and get the ball rolling now. And so it seems like a lot of people were taking advantage of that timing. Obviously, they're not selling like Christmas kids, but there were uh, a few games announced and things like that that were immediately out right after. So it did become a little bit of a in-stores-now kind of moment. So it just I mean, to look at the commercial angle. This is the maturity of gaming and this is the scale of gaming. And this is gaming borrowing from movies who borrow from TV, who borrow from sports, who borrow from music and back to gaming, right? You're talking about the developer up, right? I mean, that's been a longstanding thing in movie trailers, right? Oscar winner, blah, blah, blah. Oscar winner, blah, blah, blah. The Oscar winning director of blah, 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 right? So no surprise we're seeing gaming. And then also to your point, available now, like that's the new music Beyonce lemonade model, right? Like you don't talk about it until you can buy it because the awareness is wasted if you can't convert it, right? So like this is, again, going back to the macros, it's like we, we're all trying to find these moments, right? Like everything's like a moment where you're trying to capture, can I get to awareness? Can I get to conversion, et cetera? And again, I think we should feel very fortunate in, in the industry that we have this moment and let's see what we can do with it. Definitely. And there, and there was, to be fair, there was also some things that were even just kind of minor announcements around like, hey, we're adding DLC to this game or a new character to this or reporting this game over to PS5 or to PC. Like there was definitely a lot of people just looking for something to throw in there just to make sure like because we don't have the E3 spotlight anymore and the spotlights are so rare. You're talking about some of the other award shows just not having the eyeballs. So if this one has the eyeballs and they use the celebrities to get those eyeballs, then it's more like, hey, now we're using influencers to leverage to give a platform for these games to better advertise something to juice up sales. And obviously with the ones where it's DLC or whatever, it's like the game is available now. So it definitely seems like we will probably see more of this, I guess that kind of is my point as well. Like if this is commercially successful in giving people sales or driving attention to things that they would struggle to push through like a Steam ad or a mobile ad or some, some other maybe less visible platform that's kind of scattershot, depending on what the viewership was like. I don't know what the viewership numbers were like, but I'd be interested to see like any kind of conversions that happened as a result of actually seeing this. Obviously, unless there's a coupon code or something involved, you're not really going to see like direct attribution, but if it's successful, I imagine we'll see other award shows or other shows trying to do something like this to try and find some way to be relevant to get people to want to get their advertising out there through this, whether it be uh, even something just on Twitch. Yeah, another sort of color piece I'll add to this is I feel where you you sort of felt the layoffs and the sort of general tenor of the business coming in is I didn't feel the ecosystem of pre-event, post-event activations and celebrations existed in downtown Los Angeles this year. When I walked out of the awards, I didn't feel like I had the same options of the number of places I could go as prior years, sort of carry the celebration on into the night. And that's a qualitative view. Potentially, if you added them all up, they were as big as bigger, but it felt smaller. And maybe that's the reaction to like, it didn't feel proper to throw a big party after laying off a bunch of people and a major publisher that I'll leave unnamed chose to have their own holiday party on the day of the game awards. 
and and the employees of that publisher were at their own event as opposed to even the awards. And I know that there was some grumbling that they they had awards games that won awards or were up for awards, but the the ecosystem didn't feel. I mean, not that last year felt frothy to some of the other challenges that Aaron laid out, but it, it felt a bit subdued walking out post awards into the center of downtown Los Angeles versus a couple of years ago. Well, as we kind of wrap things up, uh, we're getting a little short on time. I, I wanted to have other people, I, I know Anil already got a chance to, but just mention any of the games that were particular standouts, not necessarily just like, oh, that looks cool, but like things to be looking forward to, probably to be discussing on this podcast down the road when they come out, good or bad, whether, whether again, that be good or bad, like you think that's a huge misstep or a particularly exciting game in terms of the business and like likelihood to be successful. I'll let you go first, Aaron. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll actually kind of tie it into a, another trend that I noticed, which is just like <laughs> the continued rise of the like quiet relevancy of China and all of this, like nothing in the event screamed China, right? But there was actually quite a lot of games that either were made directly by a Chinese developer that were pushed out more than we've seen in the past, like Black Myth Wukong, which actually looks really good, or like the Hoyo versus New Zenless Zone Zero, or like the new Ark Knights game that's coming out, but is also going to be cross-platform and therefore relevant to more people. Like that had a larger presence than I remember being in the past. But also kind of the second piece of that is the the AAA games are starting to come from the China-funded studios that are US-based or Europe-based that are either published by Level Infinite or owned by Tencent in some kind of way. And so these were games like, like Last Sentinel from the Lightspeed LA team or Exoborn, which is going to be published by Level Infinite. And honestly, like, I mean, those were, were not gameplay trailers, so we didn't like actually see much from them yet. But those are like you could tell are like high budget, like lots of effort, like lots of talent going into those games that I thought were interesting and I thought were pretty good. And I'm excited to see what's coming next. But again, nothing about that scream like like this is owned by China or like China's stealing a larger share of the the game awards trailers reveals. But that's what's happening. And as we've talked about before, like a lot of these investments are still ramping up. Like we talked about how NetEase has been launching a bunch of studios in the US and Canada and you know been buying in in Europe and a lot of those are new and I think they even just announced like a couple more over the past quarter or so and so not even all of those are showing up yet but we're already starting to see the impact and that's just going to grow further. So some of what I was interested in games wise came from these studios but as a trend that one that one really popped out to me. Real stealth trend. But uh, hopefully it's something that does it, that we don't have to care about as gamers. That is like, hey, cool games. Awesome. Everyone wins kind of thing. But as on the business side, it does seem like something worth keeping an eye on. Jonathan, your pick. And nothing really to add, except for it's clearly going to be a very busy early 2024 for Final Fantasy, which is always fun. And I'm interested to see the Apex Legends mashup. <laughs> Again, playing on that recognition and installing, <laughs> yep. right? The, the cross totally. ID and everything else. Yep. But I mean, obviously, that's a cool thing, right? Like, we do want to be excited about things that we have high hopes for, as opposed yep. to just coming out of nowhere and be like, I hope that's good. I don't know anything about it. Like, I think a good example is like uh, Blade coming out from like, oh, we, we haven't really had a Blade game, so we don't know what to expect from that. But then the developer adds a lot of context to that. You're like, oh, like yeah, they make great games that would really suit this IP. So yeah. that's cool. Like, we could be excited about it now. So I mean, given like, obviously, they, they didn't show anything other than like this brief cutscene sort of thing. But it did. It did seem like there was a bit of some of them really like being like, oh, this is going to be good. And then some being like, I don't know what to think. Aaron pointed out with the just the ones that look really cool and are obviously going to be high production value. But I guess I guess we'll really find out throughout 2024. I mean, it was good to see, though, that there is a, a big slate for 2024 because we had such a big sort of delay from COVID going into like some of the good ones coming out in 2023. It's good to know that like the layoffs haven't completely stopped the pipeline. But I do wonder if some of these end up 2025 because of layoffs and other things happening that could slow them down. So hopefully that's not the case. And hopefully we get something maybe mid 2024 to, to show the progress of these things. And it isn't just teasers, but definitely, I think an exciting time to be a gamer, even with the layoffs and other things going on. As Neil said, a lot of cool tech out there to build a lot of cool things. 
just not always not always doable. But we're definitely, I think, growing. And, and to Aaron's point, that's helping a lot of these small teams be able to do a lot of cool stuff. So I think all the better for gamers, right? The situation where we don't have to go, ah, I hope EA makes it or something where we're expecting a lot of money to be put into it. But I guess uh, that's where we could be happy about some AI tools for once. But yeah, uh, we'll, last we'll thing, see how it goes down. <laughs> last thing I'll say is like, it's also just interesting to note like who wasn't at the event or who didn't have like a big showing at the event. Like obviously we mentioned GTA. GTA is too big <laughs> for for the Game Awards. Like it deserve, deserves its own special day. And so we saw that. But also Nintendo didn't show anything. They have their Nintendo Directs and they used to be a, a big presence at E3, but it appears they've kind of gone another way. They were there to accept awards uh, and give very short speeches that were doubly short because a lot of them had to get translated. They didn't show any anything new. I guess like PlayStation was there, was there, but I guess similarly like Xbox didn't have like that big of a showing. And so still a lot of these like big ecosystem players, they might have thrown a bone out, but they're kind of hoarding their own best content for their own events and such, which with E3 Dad, Game Awards is here. It takes its place a bit as a way to come together to some degree, although it's not really a conference. Uh, but all these other companies are still going to go in their own own directions. By the way, that's it. I'm going to tag onto that for a minute. This is going to sound like a crazy comp, but bear with me for a minute. So I think you're hitting on one of the big trends of marketing anything heading into this world. I, and this is where you're going to call it a crazy comp. So automotive, right? Everybody used to activate around the Detroit Auto Show, the LA Auto Show. In the same venue, practically downtown Los Angeles, a couple of weeks before, I went to the LA Auto Show. I'm as passionate about cars as I am about games. No Mercedes, no BMW, no Porsche, right? Because the people with the power, they're creating their own activation moments. They're no longer like, I need to buy into this thing to activate and I'm going to create my own activations. I think you've identified a huge point, but I also don't think it's unique to gaming. I I think we're increasingly seeing these sort of mega powers feeling like they're going to create their own kind of fan focused announcement moments without having to rely on third parties and also the fear of sort of getting lost in the crowd. Right. I mean, again, you, you sort of opened your thing talking about GTA six we don't need to be there. We didn't need to be lost. I mean, they still leveraged it, right? Like they were supposed to be one day before, like in essence, to feel the thunder of it, right? But it's like those with the greatest power are going to create their own unique marketing moments. And I, I think you're going to see more of this in gaming as you laid out, but I think you're seeing more of it in everything. Well, then I guess that begs the question, will we see a whole bunch of attempts around where E3 was before? Because that seemed to, that became like a crater that everyone kind of dogpiled into because of that being that sort of activation window, as I guess you would put it. Is that going to be the case now? Are we going to see all of them or is everyone going to be like, I'm going to be one month earlier than them and I'm going to be one month earlier than them. And then we start to see January through July with just every big game company having their own moment and trying to spread it out. Or is it just like, hey, let's all concentrate on when people are paying attention and that's the middle of the year and the end of the year. But but I also think it's going to be about hacking other things. You mentioned Comic-Con. The movie industry didn't care about Comic-Con until not that long ago, right? And then the streaming industry started caring about Comic-Con. So I actually think part of this trend is going to be see, like, are we going to see a publisher lean into Grammy's activation? Or like, you already see some of it around DICE or GDC. Or yes, it's probably the wrong time because it's just after the big Q4 Right. But it's sort of like what other cultural events around the ecosystem and the target audience are you going to start to see sub ecosystems for gaming? Like gaming is going to pick some shots around these. Like, is it going to be the NBA All-Star Weekend? It might be right. It's the same target audience. <laughs> well, I'm going to look to the next auto show for for Mechanic Simulator 2025 to make a plug, <laughs> see if they could pull that off. <laughs> or, or Gran Turismo, I guess, or any of those kind yep. of games could definitely, I mean, they might already be doing that, to be honest. I don't pay too much attention to auto, but there's definitely plenty of games that could tag into other industry events and be a part of it. Comic-Con was a perfect example of that because it was like, hey, it's comic book movies, but it also leaned into like, hey, Star Wars or yeah, sci-fi. Totally. It's like, well, it's not comics. It's culturally relevant to that particular demographic. And I think, as you said, they're looking for moments that are like demographically relevant or spotlight attention timing relevant. And I'm sure we'll see more of that. This is definitely like not the end of that as uh, if E3 is dead and a lot of things are going to look to fill its shoes different ways. 
But I'm just gonna put a, a quick note on that as well on something that Aaron mentioned. Uh, for those who didn't see Nintendo's uh, sort of show that they were going to run in Tokyo in uh, January, I guess got canceled uh, due to like threats and stuff like that. So those are, you were looking forward to that. Unfortunately, won't happen. So hopefully they kind of shift that over to a bunch of sort of Nintendo Directs, which uh, are sort of their channel that they've built up over time, which is kind of interesting. So we'll see if they can actually leverage that the same way or if they kind of miss out on not having that sort of big event. I think maybe that'll be like an early test of what you're talking about, Jonathan. We'll see. As Aaron mentioned in the, uh, the, the top of the show here, we've got one more next week. So definitely make sure to stick around for that. Of course, thank you listeners for tuning all the way into the holidays here. And of course, into the next year as of course we're not going anywhere we're just taking a one week break so that you guys can hang out with santa claus or whoever you hang out with around this time of year and we will be back next week and then in january after that so make sure to uh, to catch us next week thank you guys of course on the panel for great opinions and i also recommend everyone go check out all the game award show stuff whether you feel it maybe too commercial crass or not there's a lot of great trailers a lot of exciting things being announced maybe your favorite things in there because God knows there's like a hundred announcements, it seems like. So chances are there's probably something you like in there. If you didn't manage to catch it, you can just Google it and find lists pretty easily in YouTube videos, things like that. So you didn't have to actually be at the show to catch up. So make sure to check those out. But in the meantime, we will be hanging out for the weekend and catch you guys next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.